Alright, let's do this. Oh, don't you? <laughs> let's do this. Okay. Okay, here we are. We are here for our Eddie Murphy, John Landis duo, the Trading Places versus Coming to America. Looking good, Jason. Feeling good, D. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Shirley Podcast. Right, or follow us on Facebook at Shirley Podcast. If you want to, you can email us, ShirleyPodcast at gmail.com. That's right. We'd love to hear from you. So interact with us. Tell us how we're doing. Tell us what you agree with. Tell us what you disagree with. Tell us where we're way off. You know, I we had somebody say something once, and it made me think of my history professor in high school. He started the whole class, first day of class. He's like, I might tell you something that's not accurate, but you have to figure that out. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. We research these things. We're not experts in anything that we do, in anything that we're talking about, but... We, we do research them. We do, yeah. So, But if we get something wrong, call us out. I, we like it. That's right. Let's yeah. hear from you. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we're going to talk about Eddie Murphy, who I was listening to Delirious on the way over here today, and my gosh, the man is so freaking funny. I wish he would do stand-up some more. It's been, I think... It's been almost 30 years. Yeah, I think with Raw was the last actual stand-up he did, right? And it was only three big show stand-up things that he did. The first Eddie Murphy, then Delirious, and then Raw. Wow. But he, that's where he got his start. You know, he started off in stand-up. He was the kid who didn't want to go outside and play. He wanted to stay in and watch TV, which is kind of me, too. <laughs> <laughs> he started doing stand-up when he was 15 years old. That's incredible. My son is 15. Yeah, to imagine them up on stage. Although, Brock, I could actually see him up on stage delivering some pretty stuff. Let's go, Brock. Stuff. Yeah. Get it together, man. He, Start working. He's hilarious. <laughs> So he starts that, and then somebody says, hey, you know, they're they're looking for a black guy over at Saturday Night Live. You should go audition for that. And he's he didn't even, I mean, he didn't really watch Saturday Night Live that much and just thought it was, eh, whatever. Right. Um, but then he thought, oh, maybe it'll be good for my stand-up. <laughs> good for him. <laughs> yeah, get me out there, and I'll, I'll get some better... Get some better stand-up gigs, and then as it turned out, it was opened a whole lot more doors than when that. When he was on Saturday Night Live, it was clear right away that this guy is going to be a star. Absolutely. Well, and I, I mean, I can understand his reaction to Saturday Night Live at that point because Lauren Michaels had left the show, and Saturday Night Live sucked. Right. I mean, this is the early '80s, and they were awful. Well, they had lost Chevy Chase. They had lost, they lost all of Gilda Radner. All these yeah. people had left. Yeah. And so when he comes in to do the audition, he does, the audition is an old bit from the 70s uh, with Chevy Chase and Richard Pryor where they do the word association game. And, you know, we're a family-friendly uh, podcast, <laughs> we so we can't it. do it. But uh, <laughs> Chevy Chase is using these racial slurs and Richard Pryor is supposed to respond <laughs> with, you know, you know, the word response. And he, all he could do is say honky, honky, and <laughs> dead honky. Yes, yeah, so when he throws out the N word, Richard Pryor's like dead honky. <laughs> and so Eddie does that with Joe Piscopo as his audition piece, and he just he knew the bit because he loved Richard Pryor, and of course he nailed it, and he saved the show. I mean, yeah, he if really it wasn't did. for him. I don't know the Saturday Night Live would still be a thing. It, it definitely got that boost it needed. Uh, at that early stage when it could have died. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was the reason people started watching again. I think. 
So cool. So we're going to talk about Trading Places yeah. from 1983. Yes. Which is an Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd movie. Right. And Coming to America, which came out on July 4th of 1988. Yep. This is interesting because Trading Places is Eddie Murphy's second movie. Yeah. His first movie was 48 Hours with Nick Nolte. Mm-hmm. He had gotten that piece because his agent was dating the guy who was going to make the movie. Um, wow. Yeah. So the rumor was that they had just seen him on Saturday Night Live and got him from that, but it was actually like he had a really inside nice yeah, deal on that one. You know, the scene that stands out in 48 Hours to me, Eddie Murphy-wise, mm-hmm. if you'll remember, he takes the cop's badge. Eddie Murphy is a con. You know, they get yes. him out of jail for this. Right. And he goes and he says, I'm going to take care of this problem. He takes the badge, gets his cowboy hat, and yeah. goes into a honky-tonk. Well, look, Hoss. You start running a respectable business, and I won't have to come in here and hassle you every night. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh! And that scene is Kills. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. At the point that at the point that that scene finishes up, like people in the audience were standing up and cheering because he was he was a straight. I mean, it was not. He was still funny. You can't be Eddie Murphy in the early eighties and not be funny, right? But that that was more of a straight piece for him, right? Straight acting. You know who wrote that scene? Who? Our friend Stephen D'Souza. Oh, right, from Die Hard. He wrote Die Hard, that's right. Yeah, I mean, a thousand movies, but yeah. That's, right, um, right. But yeah, that's our, of course, favorite of his movies. <laughs> <laughs> we could get into that a little bit later. I oh, sure, there. yeah. Okay, so so uh, Trading Places released June 8th, 1983. So, okay, so current events, right? For me, just kind of a little fashion thing, Swatch introduces their first watches. Oh, I love, I, I had a Swatch for years. Yeah. Years. Really? I was still wearing Swatches into the 90s, yeah. You want to hear my Swatch story? Yeah, sure. I bought with my own money mm-hmm. what I thought was a really cool Swatch watch. Yeah. I didn't really know. My friends were like, hey, Swatch is the way to go. I go to the store, buy a Swatch. I like it. looks cool. Bring it to school the next day. Hey, guys, check out my Swatch. They're like, why'd you buy a girl's one? <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? The little ones were girls. The big ones were boys. <laughs> you want me to do the plot overview of Trading Places? Yeah, go for it. All right. So, Lewis Winthorpe III is a successful commodity broker in Philadelphia. He's got a great job, beautiful fiance. And a wonderful home that includes a butler, Coleman. Billy Ray Valentine has a con man and a hustler who uh, pretends to be a legless Vietnam vet begging and bu- you know bugging people for money. Winthorpe's employers, the Duke brothers, make a bet that if they switched and took Billy Ray Valentine from the streets, put him in a job, and if they somehow disgraced Winthorpe, he would turn to a life of crime. And so they make this bet, and they set it up in such a way that they bring Billy Ray in for his job, and they cast out Winthorpe to the streets, and some hilarity ensues. But Winthorpe and Valentine figure this out. They join up, and they're going to take down the Duke brothers with the help of Ophelia, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who is the hooker with the heart of gold, and they're going to take down the Duke brothers. Okay, so 1988. um, That year, I can remember so clearly, we went... (laughs) We were so excited because Mike Tyson was redefining what it meant to be a boxer. I mean, he was just unbeatable. Oh, my gosh. Vicious. And uh, I, I played uh, plenty of hours of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out on my Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but we went to, we had a big event. It was, I think, maybe pay-per-view it was coming out the first time, or maybe this was on HBO and we didn't get it at the time. But he had a fight with Michael Spinks. And I can remember going there where it's a big party. There are several people there. Yeah, we're all, yeah. all guys ready to go. I'm going with my dad, you know. And the fight's about to start. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go grab a Coke real quick. I grab a Coke. I see some chips. I come back in, and the fight is over. <laughs> <laughs> he had knocked Michael Spinks out in 91 seconds. Oh, that, it, I remember that, too. That, that was amazing. This is a time when Mike Tyson – I mean, this was a huge match. I mean, I thought oh, yeah. at the time – Man, these are two big boys going to duke it out. Yep. Turns out there's only one big boy. Yeah. And he was big and bad. Yeah, he was. All right. So I don't know if you know this, D, but on Christmas Eve of 1988, yeah. terrorists take over the Nakatomi Plaza Tower. Oh, I was I was gut-wrenched at that. I was watching the news. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Shots fired. <laughs> Okay, so the other movie that we're going to talk is Eddie Murphy's second movie with John Landis. We talk about big stars of the 80s. Eddie Murphy was one, but John Landis was also one. I mean, Without was, question. You got five directors that were killing the 80s. He's, he's got to be on that list. That's right. So uh, they do the second movie together. The premise, I'll do the plot outline for Coming to America. Uh, wealthy African nation of Zamunda, the crown prince Akeem Jaffer grows weary of his pampered lifestyle. Wipers! <laughs> and <laughs> he wakes up on his 21st birthday. I tell you, I want to get, I, I know I'm supposed to be running through the plot here, but I, yeah. I want to get the music. I don't need the band, I don't need the orchestra, you know, because right. that'd be a little expensive. But that music, if I could just wake up to that music every morning, every day would be better. Good morning, Your Highness. (laughs) So it's his 21st birthday. It's the day he is supposed to meet his bride-to-be, who he's never met before. But Mm -hmm. this is an arranged marriage. And despite the fact that he lives without any want in the world that goes unmet, he is unhappy that he has to marry this woman who he has never met. And then after meeting her, though she is beautiful, she is completely complicit to every whim that he wants. Whatever you like. (laughs) So he decides to go find himself a bride in a place where people don't know who he is. And where to go to do that is America. Where better than Queens. Queens. And so he and his best friend, Simi, Go to Queens. They pose as poor African students. They get a job at the local knockoff of McDonald's called McDowell's because Prince Akeem has grown enamored with the McDowell's owner's daughter, Lisa. The hilarity ensues. Ultimately, the king comes and tries to put an end to this crazy idea that he would marry some American girl. And ultimately, they are reunited at the end of the movie. Great, great movie. Two, two great movies. Very, very enjoyable movies. The budget, let's just talk about that. They were both big hits, right? Okay. Trading Places was the fourth highest grossing film in 1983 behind Return of the Jedi, Flashdance, and in terms of endearment. So it's a big, big movie. The budget was $28 million and it made $90 million. Similarly, Coming to America, a big hit from 1988. The budget was $39 million and it made worldwide $288 million plus. Huge, huge movie for Eddie Murphy. 
we want to go through the actors, actresses, yeah, let's directors? Do this. Let's start talking about the actors. Obviously, Eddie Murphy is in both of these movies. Eddie Murphy, for a moment, he made 48 Hours. Yep. He made Trading Places. He made Coming to America. Our younger viewers and listeners may recognize his voice from Shrek. Right. He plays Donkey in Shrek. Yep. I like that boulder. That is a nice boulder. He was in The Nutty Professor, Norbit, The Adventures of Pluto Nash. Have you ever seen that movie? I have not seen that one. I can tell you that he received the Golden Globe nomination for his work on 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop, Trading Places, Nutty Professor, and for Dolomite. He ultimately won the Golden Globe for Dreamgirls. Dreamgirls, right. You know the only movie that he turned down that turned out to be a hit that he regrets not taking the role? I thought this was really interesting. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's right. I he never had, even knew that. Yeah. The guy who went on to do Shrek had proposed it to him before and said, hey, you should do this movie. He's like, eh, cartoons. I don't want to do that. Right. And when Who Framed Roger Rabbit became the success that it did, he was like, oh, whoops, yeah, not going to refuse one of those offers again. And that's how he got Donkey. Nice. And Roger Rabbit came out summer of 88 as well. All right. Dan Aykroyd, who you'll remember from Saturday Night Live. Right. Blues Brothers. Yep. Ghostbusters. Yep. Spies Like Us with John Landis. Yeah, another 80s icon. He was in Coneheads. Yeah. Uh, and one of the worst movies in the 1980s. Maybe the worst movie of the 1980s. Ishtar? <laughs> I've never seen Ishtar. You know, he was in Caddyshack 2. Oh. I don't think I hated Caddyshack 2. I oh, thought Caddyshack it was, two was okay. terrible. With the guy from The Jerk in it, right? Jackie Mason. Thank you, Jackie Mason. It wasn't good? It was awful. Oh, all right. And... Dan Aykroyd, so Dan Aykroyd was in maybe the worst movie in the 1980s. Yeah. He was also in maybe the worst movie in the 1990s called Nothing But Trouble. No, I liked that one too. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's hilarious. Okay, all yeah. right. No, it's a great one. Demi Moore and Chevy Chase. Oh, right? it was terrible. And okay. he plays the judge, doesn't he? Doesn't he yes, play the, the judge? Oh, my gosh. It's, a lot, it's okay. awesome. I can't okay. believe you don't like that movie. You, last time you saw that, you were five. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, also starring, uh, this is really cool, Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy. Yeah. The Duke Brothers. Yeah, Don Amici hadn't done a movie in 13 years. 13 years, yeah. Here's an interesting thing about this one. You know, when he started, he didn't know who these guys were. Right. They didn't know who he was. But he comes in, and I mean, the 80s are very different than the movies that Don Amici was making. I mean, you've, especially with John Landis, you're going to have lots of F-bombs. You're going to have lots of boobies. It's just the way that John Landis right. did his movies. Right, right. And so Don Amici's got two, like, big, you know, drops the F on F him about his brother. And then, I mean, in the bathroom, I... I was, I, when rewatching, it, I was like, whoa, <laughs> oh, he just dropped the N-bomb there. The oh my big N-bomb, that's right. And so he was he was adamantly, I mean, he's a conservative, religious guy. He was adamantly opposed. I'm not doing that. And they were like, you've, you've got to do it. I mean, it's just, just part of the role. And right. he was like, okay, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it once, and you better get it on the first take. And he went before this before the filming, before the scenes started, he went early to go apologize to everybody about what was about to happen. But he doesn't hold any punches on it, man. He delivers it hard. He you're does. Just, you're just like, holy smokes. <laughs> I love that about him, the fact that he's so gentlemanly to show up, and he apologizes to all the cast and crew. All right, right. everyone, guess what? I'm getting ready to drop a major F-bomb, <laughs> and I'm very sorry about that. I realize that you've been listening to Eddie Murphy for <laughs> right. the last eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> all right, funny. everyone. I know that there are young people who like to cuss, but that is not me. 
So Don Amici then, you know, this is this is kind of a comeback role for him. Yeah, yeah. The next movie that he did was Cocoon, and he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar from that movie. So cool. Good yeah. for him. You know, Ralph Bellamy kind of got a boost off of this, too. He ended up doing Pretty Woman. Yeah. You know, he's not related to Bill Bellamy. <laughs> Thanks okay. for clearing that up for us. Okay, so here's that yeah, here's that secret thing I was going to throw in. If you have any idea who Bill Bellamy is, which you should, just tell me, post a picture of Bill Bellamy on our Twitter feed. Say, at Shirley Podcast on Twitter, post a picture of him. Or if you're into Facebook, post a picture of Bill Bellamy on Facebook, and we'll give you a shout-out on one of our That podcasts. dude has gone away. I don't know what he's yeah, doing. I, mean, I don't know either. He was, a, he was a big thing there for five minutes. Yep. All right, and also in Trading Places, you have Jamie Lee Curtis. Okay. So, you know, Dan Aykroyd, they were hesitant about having him come in and do the show because they weren't sure whether he could be funny without John Belushi. That's right. That's right. And they were also hesitant about Jamie Lee Curtis because they didn't know that she could be funny at all. I mean, because the only thing that she had really done at that point were the horror flicks. She was like the screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. She had done Halloween. Mm -hmm. She had done Prom Night and The Fog and some of these horror movies. So they didn't know if she could be funny. Right. One thing they did know, though. Yeah. She was beautiful. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, so here's the story. You know, you've told your uh, booby story from Airplane. I'm going to go ahead and tell this yes. story now. So this movie came out in 1983, the summer of 1983. Yes. And my birthday is in October. I was still seven years old in 19 <laughs> when this movie came out. Okay. We're in California, and this is where this is where I found out that what rated R really meant. Okay. So I had, uh, you know, at, at that point at seven years old, I know I had asked to see the other John Landis big hit American werewolf in London. Yeah. And my dad was like, no, you can't see it's rated R. And I said, what does that mean? He says, well, it's too scary. You can't see it cause it's too scary. Right. Didn't mention the porn scene. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, uh, we, you know, we're in California. We're visiting my cousins, my brother and my cousins are all 15 years old. I'm seven. The, Parents are about to go out, and they're going to go see Dr. Detroit. Detroit, with, yeah. that has Dan Aykroyd in it, which was a big bomb for him. Fortunately, yeah. Yeah, fortunately, these movies came out at the same time, or he might have been shot. Um, but the they're going to go see it, and I was like, oh, I want to go. And they're like, you can't go. It's it's rated R. And I was like, I won't be scared. Right. <laughs> it doesn't look scary at all. <laughs> yeah, this, I mean, I'm not sure how this movie is scary, but okay. <laughs> Um, and so then a couple days later, my cousins, my brother and I go to the big multiplex theater in California and we buy tickets for Snow White. And then we proceed to go in and watch Trading Places. When? National Lampoon Vacation. When? And Risky Business. <laughs> okay. Like, I got no parent putting their hand over my eyes. Nobody's saying, don't look. And so all of a sudden, in one day, I am exposed to Jamie Lee Curtis's boobies, Rebecca De Mornay's boobies, and Beverly D'Angelo's boobies. And it was quite a day for me. That's a glorious day. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Dude. Those are three big-time girls from the from the 80s, man. I, I was a changed kid. <laughs> Wow, that's awesome. All right, so let's switch over to Coming to America. Okay, sounds good. All right, so we covered Eddie Murphy. The co-star with him was Arsenio Hall. Right. Who really hadn't done a whole lot. He had been in a little bit of John Landis's movie, Amazon Women from the Moon. Have you seen that? I love this movie. And I haven't seen it in a long time, but I know it's like a, uh, it's like a Kentucky Fried movie, right? It's different skits. And his skit opens the movie, Arsenio Hall does. And it's hilarious. Okay. So he and Eddie Murphy come to meet in kind of a weird way. I haven't gotten a good 
story on this, but it's kind of the way Eddie tells it is he's flipping through the channels and he sees himself and he's like, whoa, I don't remember doing that. And he goes back and it's like, oh, that's not me. That's Arsenio Hall. And Arsenio Hall not having done anything, it's really surprising how big his part was in this movie. I mean, he's he is the other star of the movie. Oh, without a doubt. And John Lannis actually commented that the studio had known how large this part was, they never would have gone for Arsenio Hall. And so both he and Eddie have this thing where they play multiple parts in the movie. Okay, and so that actually was a way that Eddie got the studio to buy in on his script was, hey, I'm going to play these multiple parts. He had done all of these characters when he was on Saturday Night Live, but all of his movies up until that point had just been like him playing one character and that was it. And so he does all these parts and he and Landis are tossing around ideas for different parts and they come up with the old Jewish man, Saul. John Landis tells it like this. He's, he said that back in the early you know 1900s, a lot of Jews did got their famous by doing blackface. So this would be like the flip of that, that you are going to go and play this old Jewish man. <laughs> Eddie Murphy's like, um, yeah, except... Um, uh, look at me, you know, how, right. am I, how am I going to be a white man? Right. And so at that point, John Landis says, well, I know Rick Baker. Rick Baker. That's so here's here's a little history on John Landis and Rick Baker. John Landis was the first one to use Rick Baker in anything at all. And, if, and, and for those of you listening who don't know, Rick Baker is the guy who did all of the makeup for American Werewolf in London, for the Star Wars movies, for, uh, I mean... He's he, the Michael Jordan of... Yeah, he he yeah. he dominated. Um, so John Landis had had worked on Planet of the Apes, the first go round back in the '60s. Had worked on it and went to uh, the guy who had done the stuff for that for this idea he had for a movie called Schlock. Schlock was supposed to be like a parody almost of this movie called Trog, which had come out a little while, which was short for Troglodyte and which was absolutely terrible. <laughs> and he he wanted an actual bad ape costume to wear. And so he goes to his friend who had done Planet of the Apes right. and they're like, yeah, I can do one of those for $100,000 for you. Well, okay, the budget for the movie is sixty thousand dollars. I don't really know how we're right. Going. And they're like, "Oh, okay, we we'll go to Don Pope." And so he gets who's another big name, and he goes to him. And he's like, "Oh, yeah, I could do it for you for only eighty thousand dollars." Like, okay, I, I guess I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. But as he's walking out the door, the, the Don Pope Junior comes to him, hands him a card, and said, "Hey, this kid was in just a little while ago. He's really good. Give him a try." And he, he has this card, it's, it's Rick Baker's business card, and it says, Rick Baker, Monster Maker. I love it, man. That's so cool. So, he's, so he calls Rick Baker up to come do the makeup for Coming to America. And, you know, obviously Eddie Murphy plays several characters, but the one with the most detailed makeup is Saul, this old man. Mm-hmm. And this old white Jewish man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Eddie can do the voice, right? And so the thing is, can we sell a look? And Rick Baker actually models him after his father-in-law. Who is a double in the movie. You can actually see him. Yeah, on the scenes where Eddie Murphy is the barber, you still have Saul that you can see (laughs) behind his shoulder. You can tell it's not the same guy. Well, it's the guy that they modeled Saul after. Yeah, yeah. All right, so other people in Coming to America, James Earl Jones. Yeah. Who you may recognize as the voice of Darth Vader. Yes. Who actually has a line in the movie. Yeah. I'll deal with him myself. Yeah, it's a throwback to... Leave them to me. I will deal with them myself. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Uh, he's been, he was in uh, Conan the Barbarian and The Sandlot. Yeah. 
I mean, he's been in tons of things, but really he's known because he has this great voice, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he's a fantastic actor all around, but everybody knows that voice. It's unmistakable for sure. His dad was actually in Trading Places, Robert Earl Jones. What? Yeah, he was. He had a small role as one of the attendants in, in Trading Places. So James Earl Jones, then you have John Amos, who yeah. is well known for his role in Good Times. Right, yeah. TV show from the 70s. Yeah, and then also really well known for uh, his role in Roots. Yeah, he plays adult Kunta Kinte. You're right, which comes up in the movie, of course. Kunta, yeah. It's Kunta Kinte. You know, Kunta Kinte. That's right. Um, he's the, one of the bad guys in Die Hard 2. Oh, wow, yeah, that's right. He was one of the army guys. I forget, he was the leader of the kind that's of right. rebel The special army forces, yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, with John Amos, he had done a bunch of stuff. He was a Golden Gloves boxer. He was a football player. I had played for the Canadian League and eventually got dismissed from that. And He's kind of figuring out what to do, but has an agent. And they say, hey, you want to go do a singing McDonald's commercial? And he's like, sure, whatever. Yeah, really. So he goes and does this singing, dancing, get your get a mop, get a bucket commercial with Potsy before he's Potsy um, on nice. Happy Days. Uh-huh. And it ends up being one of the best McDonald's commercials ever. And then, of course, you know, he goes on to own his own McDonald's. <laughs> that's so awesome. A year or two, I make assistant manager. And that's where the big bucks start rolling in. All right, sweet. Both of these were directed by John Landis, yes. who is well known for, uh, we, we touched on this briefly, but Schlock, Blues Brothers, Animal House, yep. Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, the Thriller video, which if you'll go back to episode one, we talked at length about the Thriller video, right? and then American Werewolf in London, and then we need to talk a little bit about the Twilight Zone movie. Okay, so just before Trading Places happened, John Landis was one of a handful of directors that was involved with the Twilight Zone movie. His segment was a segment with Vic Morrow, where Vic Morrow is this racist bigot who goes to different places and and is in the body of the people that he's got prejudices against. That's right. But in the production of the movie, there's an accident that occurs and Vic Morrow and two child actors are killed by a helicopter that crashes after an explosion. Kills them both. Or kills all three of them, sorry. Not just kills them, but horribly decapitates them. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah. So at that point, I mean, he's dealing with that while he's making some of the best movies anybody's seen in the 80s. It's kind of crazy. He doesn't end up doing the trial on it until later on, like 1987, I think, is when the trial happens. And so I I can't imagine going through the experience itself, let alone going for years as you're waiting. And then we're talking about not a civil suit. We're talking about criminal action. Like he and a few of the other people who were involved were charged with manslaughter. And so... That's a, he that's was huge. really close to going to jail. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah that had been a long prison term. Yeah, and as it turns out, Eddie says this is the reason that we didn't get along. I'm coming to America now. John Landis gives a different reason why they didn't get along, but Eddie says, you know, he was mad because I didn't, I wasn't there and supporting him during his trial. Yeah, and so he tries to, you know, treat me like a little kid, like I was back in Trading Places, and I'm not a little kid anymore. And so eventually, it like comes down to John Landis saying something, and Eddie kind of angrily but playfully puts him in a chokehold, and then when John Landis tries to playfully, you know, grab his crotch. Eddie tightens and cuts off his hair. 
and he runs off. It escalated really quick. Right. Yeah. It was it was bad, and, and it turned ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, they were not happy with each other as human beings after the show. They're both very happy with the movie, obviously, but. Landis, on the flip side of that, said, yeah, he went from being this, you know, super kid to this pig-headed jerk a-hole is the word that he used. Yeah. And just wasn't fun to work with him anymore. But eventually they reconciled. They did reconcile, but here's the interesting thing to me. In 1990, Playboy magazine interviewed Eddie Murphy. Yep. And his quote was, this is how harsh this is. Yeah. Vic Morrow has a better shot of working with John Landis than I do. Ouch. That's rough. And then Beverly Hills Cop 3 comes out in 94, so they they buried the hatchet apparently. Yeah. Maybe it's unfortunate if you've seen Beverly Hills Cop 3. It's not good. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. You know, we talk about John Landis being this huge rock star of the 80s. You know, he's got several hits before, but Trading Place was a huge hit to, to catapult his career. Does bunch of great movies, then does Coming to America, and then none of anything that he's done after that have I thought is good. Nothing. All right, so composers real quick. Trading Places has Elmer Bernstein, our big buddy Elmer Bernstein. Elmer Bernstein, the key to Kevin Bacon game. That's exactly right. Yeah, so Elmer Bernstein had done all of these great movies back in the 60s and had been out of it for a while. And then John Landis brings him back in with uh, Animal House. And then he starts doing all of these other great movies again, including yeah. Ghostbusters. Caddyshack, Spies Like Us, To Kill a Mockingbird, Ten Commandments. Yeah. He's all over, all over the place. Yep. So the movie Trading Places starts off with this music from The Marriage of Figaro. Yes. Which is fantastic because it not only does it kind of set the stage, it's kind of the, you know, masterpiece theater type of uh, sound where you're seeing the regal Dan Aykroyd getting ready and then his butler who's played by... Denim Elliott. Right, who you'll remember from... Raiders of the Lost Ark. Another throwback who, by the way, on this one, in the scenes that he's in, he's always funny. Like, he's just quietly funny and the, the second... A director on this thing, you know, they would do a take where he would have to walk through a door. And he said every single time he would do something different. He had some other business, some other thing that he was doing different, and it was funny every single time. So he goes to him after the takes and he's, he says, Mr. Elliot, you know, how, how are you funny over and over with different stuff every time? And he says, my boy, when you have parts as small as these, you learn to make something out of them. That's awesome. <laughs> He's great. He's great. He's great as Marcus Brody in Raiders. So I've completely derailed the conversation about the soundtrack. No, it's fine. It's fine. Coming to America's composer is a guy named Nile Rogers. Does that ring a bell with you? No. Uh, so he's. You may recognize his face. He's kind of a familiar, familiar-looking person. Right. But if you listen to '80s music at all, yeah, you know who this guy is. Okay. He did the Reflex by Duran Duran. Oh wow! Yeah. Like, produced it, right? Yeah. He produced uh, Let's Dance by David Bowie. Okay. He was in the um, the pop band Chic and their song Good Times. Good Times. And he produced Madonna's first album, Lucky Star, Borderline, Holiday. And he does a fantastic job with this soundtrack. They wanted a somebody who could do the African-style music, uh-huh. which he does kind of this long, the lion sleep tonight in the opening credits, which is great. Right. It's by the group Ladysmith Black Mombazo. 
who you will remember if you listen to any of the Paul Simon songs from that era, Graceland. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're a great musical group. And I noticed, I don't know if this is right, I haven't researched it all, but as you're listening to that opening, the opening version of The Lion Sleeps Tonight, there's a little part where it sounds like they've inserted one of Eddie's laughs in there. I, I, I will play it for you here. I okay. think that's Eddie's laugh. I All really right. do. And I think a little bit later on, you, you hear Arsenio Hall's laugh as well. But anyway. All right. Cool. So on the soundtrack side of things, you've got Ladysmith, Black Mombazo singing Moombi. Moombay. Moombay. I'm sorry. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's The Lion Sleeps Tonight. But then you've got other songs that come throughout. Uh, a few of them sang by Eddie Murphy. Yes. Oh, The Greatest Love of All. That's yeah. right. Sexual Chocolate. Sexual Chocolate. Randy Watson. <laughs> <laughs> I believe the children are our future. Thank you. Okay, and we can't leave the actors and actresses in Coming to America without mentioning Madge Sinclair. She was the queen, of course, and then interestingly later on, she is again the queen, but the lion queen to the lion king. Because she, again, is with James Earl Jones in the movie The Lion King. She plays the voice of Cerebi, who is... Simba's mom. Simba's mom. But what's the name of James Earl Jones's... Mufasa. Mufasa. Yes, so it's Mufasa. Cerebi. And then also, she plays the wife of Kunta Kinte in Roots. Wow. Yeah. And then James Earl Jones was not in the original Roots, but was in the, the second... Uh, version of Roots. The, the couple of years later, I can't remember what the subtitle was, but he was in Roots, you know, part two. <laughs> Root harder, right? <laughs> Roots with a vengeance. Yeah. Um, I, I do think it's interesting as we're diving into these movies yeah. that we find out how many movies are sort of related. Yeah. Right. Trading Places and Coming to America, we, we would say they're brothers. I mean, they are Eddie Murphy and John Landis. They're brothers, right? Right, yeah. But sort of cousins to these movies mm-hmm. are, you know, the Blues Brothers or... Roots. The Roots. <laughs> the Nutty Professor, right? Right. Um, I do want to uh, mention Sherry Headley plays Lisa from Coming to America. Yes. And she does a great job. She She's just a sweetheart and has a great smile. Yeah. She's very sort of regal, even though she lives in Queens. Right. You know who finished second for the part of Lisa? Tell me. Vanessa Williams. Uh, Vanessa okay. Williams, who was the singer. She's a singer, a very successful singer. She was the one who was stripped of her crown for Miss America. Miss America for the uh, penthouse. Uh, spread. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was an interesting bit there for the 80s. I remember that. Okay, let's dive in. I got some tidbits that I want to bounce off of you. Yeah, go, go. Okay, so Trading Places was originally to star Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Right, they and had done Stir Crazy, which Stir Crazy been... was a huge hit in 1980. Yeah, and it was originally supposed to be called Black and White. It's not very creative. That name's terrible. Yeah. But Richard Pryor had to back out. Did you hear why he had to back out? Um, I heard it had something to do with him setting himself on fire. He set himself on fire after freebasing cocaine. Oh. He was freebasing cocaine and went into this drug-induced psychosis, poured rum all over himself, and let himself on fire. I can't tell you how many times I've done the same thing. (laughs) I mean, who hasn't done that? Oh, man. 
So yeah, when when Richard Pryor was out, I mean he was he didn't he had like only a thirty percent shot of making it through that. He they didn't know if he was going to live. And he was a little twitchy after that. I could too. I can remember. I mean, I don't know if it was the free basing the cocaine or the being on fire, but he wasn't the same guy after that. No, but he actually references that in one of his uh, comedy stand-up routines, which oh yeah, make fun of yourself and people laughed and they it's, kind of endeared him to him. It's one of my favorite lines from Scrooged. Where Bill Murray thinks that the waiter is on fire and, no, and he's not actually on fire and everybody else is confused and he grabs the bucket of water and throws it on the waiter and the waiter's looking at him like, what? And he goes, I'm sorry, I thought you were Richard Pryor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's awesome. There is a restaurant in Philadelphia in the Westin Hotel called Winthorpe and Valentine. Fantastic. After the movie. How cool is that? So I'm sure you're getting to the, you're talking about them being brothers, these two movies. Yeah. You, of course, have the connection that happens. Eddie Murphy, in frustration with Simi making the crap hole apartment look nice, grabs his money and takes it away from him. It sticks it in a McDowell's bag. <laughs> and then as he and Lisa are walking, you know, romantically together, he hands the bag full of money to a couple of bums. Well, a couple of bums turn out to be... The Duke Brothers. I love that scene. That is my favorite scene in Coming to America. I mean, <laughs> and partially because I love Trading Places so yeah. much. But yeah, Don Amici's like, Randolph, leave me alone, Mortimer. <laughs> Randolph. And there, he says, we're back. Yeah. The Duke Give Brothers. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to, again, I'm going to derail this. So this is, you know, people talk about movies that are important in black history, and this movie just doesn't come up, but it should. I mean, this is a movie that there are only three speaking parts for white actors. In are this you talking movie. about Coming to America? We're talking about Coming to America. Okay. Only three speaking parts in this movie. One is uh, Randolph Duke. The other one is Mortimer Duke. And those parts are obviously pretty small. And the other one is Louis Anderson, who is hysterical in this movie but he's also not got a particular I'm washing big lettuce part. now yes pretty soon I'll be on fries yeah a couple of years I'll make assistant manager <laughs> that's when the big bucks start <laughs> when they were preparing for this movie and I think they were in costume or they were hanging out together anyway Ralph Bellamy, who had done 99 films yep. Don Amici had done 49 films this is Trading Places I'm sorry, we're back on trading places. Yes, trading places, yeah. Uh, and Eddie Murphy joked that between the three of them, they had made 150 films. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing on trading places before we kind of bounce around. Um, this movie is more than likely based on what's known as Silver Thursday. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but March 27, 1980, mm -hmm. the Hunt Brothers from Texas tried unsuccessfully to corner the market in silver. Oh, okay. And when the time came and they were, they had to come up with a hundred million bucks, they didn't have it. Right. Kicked off the market. So that's the end scene of Trading Places. And so obviously, you know, this movie is based on a couple of old storylines, the Pygmalion, My Fair Lady storyline, where you take somebody from the gutter, the Cinderella story, you take somebody from the gutter and you pass them off as a sophisticated elite uh, type of person. It's done in that one. And it's also based on uh, the Mark Twain, The Prince and the Pauper, where yes. the the prince trades place with the pauper and the pauper takes over as prince. And it's that whole same storyline. Even a line in the movie, it's very original. <laughs> but, you know, they do an entirely 
different thing with it. The same story is covered in The Three Stooges, if you've ever seen Hoi Polloi. Hoi Polloi, yeah. starts out with a couple of rich guys talking about how they can take people from the gutter and pass them off as as rich people. As, yes, they turn the Stooges into gentlemen, or try, actually. Yeah, it, yes. Let's talk real quick before we get into the, the plots, you know, get into the details of the movie. There are a couple of actors that appear in these movies in very small non-speaking or one or two line parts in trading places you get Giancarlo Esposito who if you've seen Breaking Bad he was the guy from Breaking the bad guy from Breaking Bad Um, if you've seen The Mandalorian he's the guy who shows up at the end who's kind of dressed like Darth Vader who's the bad guy there there's been a ton of Spike Lee movies do the right thing uh, is all over the place now, but this was like his first major movie role, but he's just a guy standing on the, leaning against the bars in the jail cell. <laughs> and then also, it, it, in that same scene, next to Eddie Murphy, is the, the guy they called Durag Lenny, played by Clint Smith, who's a friend of Eddie Murphy's. He'd been in a couple of Saturday Night Live. Really? Bits. Okay. And then Clint Smith, of course, also appears as the third barber in Coming to America, uh, who's, that boy's good. Yeah, good and terrible, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That scene in the jail cell is hilarious, though, because Eddie Murphy's blowing all this BS to a few guys who are listening to him, and a couple of big guys are like, Hey, man, if you've been in all these fights, how come you don't look messed up? Because I'm a karate man. (laughs) Karate man bruise on the inside, so we don't show our weaknesses. But you too dumb. Yeah, yeah. Can't finish that line. Family friendly. Family friendly. That scene is so funny. And then Clint Smith backs him up. Yeah, you do dumb. Yeah. So. Yep. You know who was originally supposed to be the king in Coming to America? No, I don't know. I'm, tra- I'm bouncing all over. No, that's fine. They wanted Sidney Poitier to be the king. Oh, I didn't know that. And that would have been wrong. That would have been... He's too serious. Like, James Earl Jones can pull off the comedy somehow. Right. But I've never seen Sidney Poitier be funny in my life. <laughs> Sidney Poitier definitely could do the regal, but not the funny. Yeah, and yeah. James Earl Jones actually wanted the part of McDowell. He Cleo. wanted the John yeah. Amos, Cleo McDowell. He wanted the John Amos part. So here's an interesting bit. We're just going to, we're also, this is a scattershot show today. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, so the interesting bit about McDowell's is, you know, they went to McDonald's to say, hey, you know, is it okay if we do this for the movie? Because they didn't want to get sued, of course. Right. And so McDonald's actually said, yeah, I think this is a good idea. Yeah. They were, they were like, yeah, go for it. You can do it. Um, we actually want you to kind of emphasize how hard we're going to be on anybody who tries to steal our trademark ideas. You know? Yeah. And so that was kind of a theme of the show. But then the corporate office forgot to tell the local franchisee. And so when they show up to the, you know, the old Wendy's that's getting renovated to make it into a McDowell's, the local franchisee shows up with his lawyer and they're taking pictures just like the guy in the movie. That's right. And we're going to sue your sack off. You yeah. Know? Yeah. They got the golden arches. Mine is the golden arcs. I see they got the Big Mac. I got the Big Mick. We both got two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions. But they use a sesame seed bun. My buns have no seeds. <laughs> Our buns have no seeds. But as he delivers that line, which is already funny, he smacks the door into Louis Anderson, who spills the Coke all over the floor. <laughs> it's hysterical. Yes, that is super funny. On Coming to America... We're bouncing back now. <laughs> Wait the, a minute. We're still on Coming to America. That's we're on Coming to America. All right. The dance scene at the beginning, 
during the wedding. Yes. Okay. You have this big, magnificent thing, the wedding. Here comes, she's your queen. <laughs> right? They had this big dance routine. You know yeah. who that was choreographed by? I do. Paula Abdul. Yes. Who had yet become the big name that she was in, in the later part of the 80s. Yeah, she was. She had not released uh, Straight Up. Straight Up came out after coming to America in 88. Right. And you know who plays a prominent part in the Straight Up video? Arsenio Hall. That's right. Otherwise known as Semi. Right. Man, and what a what a career launch. I mean, did you watch the Arsenio Hall show when you were a kid? I watched it all the time. Yeah, I watched that all the time. I mean, that part alone is iconic, right? Mm -hmm. It was a big, big deal in the early 90s. Yeah. There is an interesting Arsenio Hall clip. I'm going to bring us down for just a second. Okay. Jim Henson was on the Arsenio Hall show, interviewed by Arsenio Hall, and he wasn't feeling good. Oh. And talking about his career and talking about some things, but he was on the show and, hey, I'm here, I'm doing it, you're feeling a little sick. He's like, ah, I'm all right. Two days later, dead. Oh. And he had pneumonia or whatever it was. And and such a loss. Jim Henson was such a critical part of our childhood. So he did all these things and then, you know, Frank Oz was a big part of the Jim Henson line as well. He did the voice for Miss Piggy. Fozzie Bear. He did Sam the Eagle. Yeah. He did Yoda. And Frank Oz, of course, is also a big player in all of John Landis's movies. Yes. Well, almost all. He's not in Coming to America. But if you get the scene where they just arrive in America and they're still in the airport, there's an announcement that comes over the PA system. Frank Oskowitz, please <laughs> go to the white courtesy phone. <laughs> that happens. And that's actually Frank Oz's real name. John Landis still found a way to put him, that's in, his, really cool. put him in his movie. And he's the cop in Trading Places. Yeah, and the cop in Blues Brothers, too. There's another connection. He's the cop at the beginning of Blues Brothers when Jake Blues is getting out of prison and he hands him all of his stuff. By the way, another connection, the number that Dan Aykroyd holds up whenever he's getting his mug shots done is the same number that John Belushi had as his prison number in Blues Brothers. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay, you you mentioned the Muppets. Yeah. And Frank Oz is in Trading Places. Let's flip back to Trading Places real quick. Trading Places, yeah. Back to Trading Places. He's the police officer there. Yeah, so he's the one who's like, he plants the, he's like, this is angel dust, right? PCP. You know what this stuff does to kids? Yeah. So he's the cop that's sort of in collusion with Clarence Beaks. Right. But do you know who the traitor is for the Duke brothers when they send him in and say, go buy orange juice? Wilson? Yeah, Wilson. Bye. Yeah, no, I don't know. Who Just that is. get in there. Let yeah. us worry about that. Right. You know who that is? No. His name is Richard Hunt. Okay. He did the voice of Scooter from the Muppet movie. Uh-huh. The Muppets. Yeah. Janice. Oh, yeah. Janice is so cool. Okay, guys. I told my mom if I want to run around the beach naked. Uh, <laughs> he did Beaker and uh-huh. he did Stadler. So he was a very prominent Muppeteer. Yeah. So. Pretty cool connection there. Yeah. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. So, join us next week for part two of the debate. Thank you so much for your support of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Don't forget, we also love to discuss these on social media. So, be sure to follow us at Shirley Podcast on Twitter. Shirley Podcast on Facebook. Email us at ShirleyPodcast at gmail.com. 
or check out the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast channel on YouTube. And as always, please hit the subscribe button now so that you never miss an episode of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. All music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the fair use agreement under the U.S. copyright law.